one thing I want everybody to understand, it's not your fault. It really isn't. I mean, you know, again, if, you know, nobody were struggling with their weight and you were, you might want to ask yourself what's different about me, but everybody's struggling with their weight. You know, being overweight is normal in modern society and being anything other than overweight is rare. It's truly rare. It's a small, small minority of the population that manages it. And, you know, the people that do, it's either because they're genetically predisposed to be thin no matter what, or it's because they've got skill power. But it's rare. It's easy to be overweight and damn hard not to be. And that's not your fault. If you'd lived at any other time in history, any other time, it would have been the other way around. And at any other time in history, most people were lean. But now, you know, most people are not. Hey friends, and welcome to the Feeling Full Podcast. I'm Mordechai, an entrepreneur and coach who struggled with being overweight for nearly two decades. But since 2012, I've lost 130 pounds and have kept it off. Join me and my guest today to discover how it's possible and even simple to lose weight with ease without dieting or intense workouts. If you're ready to give up quick fixes and fad diets and build a fulfilling relationship with your body and food, then this show is for you. Today, our guest is Dr. David Katz. David has dedicated his career in the last three decades helping people who are struggling with their weight, food cravings, and sugar addiction, amongst many other things. He earned his BA at Dartmouth College and got his medical degree at the Albert Einstein College of Medicine. David's on a mission to change policy around food and has incredible ways of doing it. If you're interested, you can find out more about his projects at thetruehealthinitiative.com. I learned so much during this conversation, but something that stands out is David's perspective on the weight and food problem in our country. He believes if you struggle with your weight, it's not your fault. It's actually more common today to struggle with your weight than it is to not. And if you're going to lose weight, he says, the best weight to lose is the weight of guilt and shame. We cover some great info about how to manage sugar cravings, motivation, and overall how you can live a healthier life. And before we jump in, I just want to apologize for the audio quality in this recording. It's not the greatest, but I can assure you the content will make up for it. It's really great to have you with us today, Doctor. I just want to start by thanking you for all of your all of your work that you do, not only around obesity and nutrition, but recently around COVID. And I just want to congratulate you on your new book, How to Eat. It's uh, it's really awesome to have you with us today. Thank you, Mordecai. Great to be with you. So let's just start from the top here. How to eat? How does one come up with a, such an obvious title to a book <laughs> cover? And, and what's the thought behind that? <laughs> Well, uh, th- this book was co-authored with Mark Bittman, whom uh, I imagine many listening in will know, uh, iconic food columnist for the New York Times for many years, uh, author of, of many iconic books, most particularly How to Cook Everything. And Mark and I came up with a whole batch of very creative titles, actually, which the publisher rejected and, and replaced them all with, hey, we've got an idea. How about How to Eat? And we, we actually weren't wildly enthusiastic about it at first, but it kind of grows on you. And of course, you know, again, he wrote how to cook everything. So we thought, well, you know, in some sense, this is how to eat, but in parentheses, but not quite everything. So they kind of go together. But again, you know, we have this long list of rejected titles I'll be happy to share with you sometime. Those are the creative ones. This is where we landed. It kind of almost feels like, I mean, I, I'm sure there was a creative marketing process too, but it kind of feels like you're almost trying to communicate a message to people with that kind of title. You know, Mark and I share the view that nobody should need another book about diet. And the whole tone of the book, as you know, is, you know, it's conversational, it's fun, it's engaging, it's sort of lighthearted, but it's also, 
you know, kind of in your face. I mean, we're sort of grabbing you by the lapels of common sense, giving you a shake and say, come on, you, you know that fruits and vegetables are good for you. And you know that ultra processed frankenfood is bad for you. You know, how much about nutrition that you need to know have you not already learned? It's really just a question now of putting it into practice and, and resisting all of the fads and fashion statements and gimmickry and propaganda that's out there. So in some ways, I think how to eat is just right. You know, my first book from, gee, better part of 30 years ago now, 25 years ago anyway, was called The Way to Eat. Same basic idea. I just, in that one, I played around with the idea of the way, obviously, as a manner or how. I mean, essentially, the way to eat, how to eat mean exactly the same thing. But the way is also a journey. And in that book, I focused a bit more on the journey of behavior change, transitioning from how you eat now to how you want to eat to get more years in your life, more life in your years, which is you know, ultimately the goal, pleasure from good food, pleasure from good health. I think that's the prize. So this was just the same basic idea, but kind of leaving out the journey element. This is really much more about the what than the how. But again, you know, the, the book is, it's a conversational reality check. And, you know, in some ways, paradoxically, in a book about how to eat, Mark and I are telling our readers, you really shouldn't need another book about how to eat. Right. You know, if, if you think about it for a minute, the places around the world where people derive the greatest benefit from diet, so they derive pleasure from eating, they derive the pleasure from good food, they derive the pleasure from good company while eating the food, it's sustainable, it's been practiced for generations, it stood the test of time, it adds years to lives, it adds life to years. Well, in those places, nobody's reading books about diet. They're just eating the same way they always did. And what I'm referring to is the blue zones, right? Those five populations around the world described by National Geographic fellow Dan Buettner, where people most routinely live to be 100, have the lowest known rates of all chronic diseases and die peacefully in their sleep, 102. Nobody there is buying a fad diet book, or if they are starting to, then they're going to lose the blue dog blessings. Because when you're waiting for you know the, the next author to tell you what the right way to eat this week is, you lose all those benefits of these time-honored, heritage-based, proven ways of eating where you can love food that loves you back, where it is sustainable and it sustains your vitality, your longevity and pleasure. I, you know, again, I, we should all be eating that way. And, and if we were, <laughs> the market for diet books would go away. Publishers don't really want that, but I would be delighted if I lived to see that day. Yeah, I completely agree with what you're saying. It's kind of fascinating because I've been actually really interested in blue zones as well, because in my search for trying to solve my own struggle with food and, and addiction and the, just the compulsion with overeating and you know that losing and gaining weight. It's fascinating because I've, I've read dozens of diet books and you're right. They're all the same. They're all pe preaching one quick fix, one quick fix to, to lose the weight. And the only thing that's ever worked for me was the opposite of that. It was never one quick fix. A lot of little, little small things. Right, right. And there's so much information available to us today, um, what to eat and what not to eat. And like you said, it's not an information problem. Like when I was at my heaviest, I well, knew. It is an information problem in the other direction, Mordecai. Yeah. So you, you have no trouble getting information about what to eat that is reliable. But right. there's a, a vastly greater amount of misinformation about what to eat that's not reliable, but that's really good at trying to sell you something. Because, you know, again, if you're speaking truth, now, the truth is always bounded by reality. I can't promise you that you're going to eat in a way that's healthy and sustainable and lose 37 pounds in 22 minutes. I just can't do it. It's not real. Right. But if I'm a huckster, 
I absolutely can promise you that. Just follow my magic formula and, you know, lose 27 pounds a day and the weight will just drop off you and you'll never be hungry. You know, it's all nonsense. But what difference does it make? I'm making it up as I go. And they're just innumerable fad diet books that adopt the same basic formula. You know, they invoke a silver bullet or a scapegoat. They tell you that, you know, I'm the only person on the planet who knows the truth or is willing to speak the truth. Everybody else has kept something from you. There are these conspiracy theories, right? I mean, you know, it, it's very formulaic. And I'm going to reveal the secret you deserve to know, but nobody but me was smart enough to figure out or was willing to tell you or both. And here it is. And, and you know, almost all of that stuff, which sounds too good to be true, is. It's nonsense. It's gimmickry. It's propaganda. But boy, does it sell. And essentially, who people are selling, they're selling fear. They're selling fear, they're selling scarcity. And it's just kind of almost the same thing that people are, you know, the fast food companies are selling, right? Instant gratification and just the opposite, the opposite side of the spectrum. Exactly. Yeah. And, and of course, you know, they both benefit from one another. If I can talk you into eating all the wrong things and profit from that, that's good for me. And it also creates a market for, you know, the, the bad diet publishers because, you know, and the authors and that whole industry, basically, you know, the weight loss propaganda space thrives on people not eating the way they should and not exercising the way they should. And so, yeah, America runs on Duncan and all sorts of other stuff that feeds our epidemic obesity. And then other industries thrive on that. Uh, the weight loss industry does, pharmaceutical industry does, because of course, obesity, is, which is, you know, you can call it epidemic or pandemic, but really it's hyperendemic, which means it's at extremely high levels and just fixed there. You know, it's been at very high levels for a very long time. And it's a canary in the coal mine of chronic disease, where you have high levels of obesity, you have high levels of type 2 diabetes and heart disease and osteoarthritis and lots of other stuff, which gets treated with drugs. You could almost imagine a party in a boardroom filled with cigar smoke and confetti, you know, where you've got big food celebrating their profits, and you've got big publishing celebrating their profits from bad diet books to deal with the fallout of all this horrendous junk food. And you've got big pharma celebrating the massive sales of all these drugs to treat diseases people never needed to get in the first place. And it's this confluence of factors that I have been fighting against my now three-decade-long career in public health. And it's also why we are, so far, losing the war, because there are a lot of people trying to do good, but our collective force is small compared to the mighty winds of our culture which blow in the direction of profit ahead of public health, which routinely favor mortgaging the health of adults and children alike for the sake of corporate coffers. It's a sad reality. And honestly, that's exactly what drives me to do this work as well. As you know, I spent decades on the other side of it, not as a physician, but I'm fighting my own personal fight to not feel like a victim to sugar, a victim to you know, quick, fast food, you know, the all-American diet, the hot dogs and French fries and soda. And that's kind of the way I ate for a couple of decades, you know, to a point where I got, you know, I became 330 pounds. So for me, like I, the thing that bothers me the most is the companies that are taking advantage of innocent people who don't know what they're eating. You know, you go to a grocery store and something says organic and inside of it is full of sugar or can't, you know, or processed food and score it's got 20 ingredients and it says organic and there's it's not a live nutrient inside of it you know right, and it's right. like yeah, you, you can get organic gummy bears and organic jelly beans and yeah they're organic but it's still junk 
Yeah, Mordecai, if I may, just a couple things quickly. First, you know, the notion that this is by design, on purpose, exploiting you, that's absolutely true. And there are lots of great sources on that. But the one that I routinely recommend is the writing of Michael Moss. Michael's an investigative journalist with a Pulitzer Prize. So his, his two recent books are Salt, Sugar, Fat, and Hook. But what everybody can readily access without taking out a credit card is a New York Times Magazine cover story, just a Google search away, entitled The Extraordinary Science of Addictive Junk Food. So all you need to do is type in your Google search box, Moss Addictive, and you'll pull that right up and read that story. It's incredible. So you know, it's, it's the tale of every large food company in America and around the world hiring teams of scientists with PhDs and giving them high-tech like functional MRI machines and marching orders to keep working on food formulations until they light up the human appetite center in the hypothalamus like a Christmas tree. In other words, design food people can't stop eating until their arms get tired from lifting it to their mouths. And you know, the idea is the more irresistible food is, the more you will overeat. The more you overeat, the more you overbuy. And if you overbuy, that all redounds to my profit if I'm the one selling the stuff. It's horrible for you, horrible for your kids, but it's terrific for me. So there's that part of the story. It absolutely is by design. People are absolutely getting bonuses if they can design food to make you fat and sick for the sake of their company's profits. The other thing to point out, you know, there's lots of interest these days in paleo and, and you know, what Stone Age diets were like. And much of that is pretty misguided. But here's what isn't. We were adapted to a world where calories were relatively scarce and hard to get. and Physical activity was unavoidable. It was called survival and everybody did it every day. There were no mechanized devices. There was no technology. There was just us and our muscles. So, you know, being alive and surviving meant doing physical work every day. And calories were relatively scarce, both because we had to gather and hunt them for ourselves and because almost all foods in the natural world, with rare exception, are relatively energy dilute. All plant foods are pretty energy dilute. There'd be rare exceptions like nuts or seeds or eggs or organ meats. But by and large, it was just about impossible to overeat. We were physically active because we had no choice. We ate food direct from nature because there were no alternatives. Nothing was highly processed. Nothing wreaked havoc with our appetite center. And in that world, we did fine. There was no obesity. You know, essentially everybody ate what they could find. They ate until they were full or they went hungry, but you know, nobody overate. And it then makes sense that we are designed by the forces of natural selection. We're adapted to like to eat when we can find food because you know, finding too much wasn't much of a problem. We are adapted to like sugar because it's pretty scarce in the natural world. You find it in fruits and you find it in honey but otherwise you don't find it anywhere and you have to really work hard to get it. It's a concentrated source of quick energy, so the body likes it. The the other thing to note about sugar is that breast milk is a little bit sweet because of the lactose content. And so we're born liking the taste of sweet because as a newborn mammal, if you don't like the taste of breast milk, you're in serious trouble because that's your only sustenance when you start out in life for all mammals. So all mammals are born with a predilection to like the taste a breast milk, which is a little bit sweet. So we all like sweet. And again, that's not a problem in a world where it's just about impossible to find too much sweet food. We all like fat in our diets because it feels good in the mouth, uh, because it makes food more palatable, but also probably physiologically because it's a concentrated source of energy. There are more, more than twice as many calories per gram of fat as in protein or carbohydrate. 
So, you know, in a world where it's a struggle to get enough to eat, it makes sense to like fat. So salt, sugar, fat, we like salt, same thing, you know, basically in a natural world, um, animals will go to a salt lick. Sodium is so scarce for land animals. They have, they do extra work to try to find some. It wasn't until we started hyper-processing food that excess sodium became a concern. So we like salt, we like sugar, we like fat, the things that Michael Moss wrote about in Salt, Sugar, Fat. And then we built a modern culture that is awash in them. So the things that were adapted to like because they were good for us when they were scarce are now available in constant excess. You take native cravings from the Stone Age that made sense in Stone Age context and put them in a modern culture that runs on Duncan where you know tasty calories are never more than an arm's length away. And you wind up with not just an individual's weight control struggle, but with rampant obesity in all of society, a vast majority, vast majority of Americans, and for that matter, people living in modern cultures all around the world are overweight or obese because it's not the individual's fault. You know, we're drowning in, in tasty calories designed to be addictive. We're drowning in labor-saving technology. And the bottom line is homo sapiens has all kinds of native defenses and adaptations to protect against starvation, but we basically have none to protect against obesity because in a natural world, you don't need those. In a natural world, obesity is not, a, not even a question, like you said. The thing that's coming up here, salt, sugar, fat, I'm obsessed with that book. It really lit a fire under my ass when I read it. I'm just like, <laughs> what, what I felt intuitively was happening to me, what I was experiencing, I should say, and then reading that book was just confirmation of like what I, what I didn't know that I didn't know. I'm curious. So fat and salt aren't as addictive as sugar and sugar seems the most addictive. And for people that, you know, I've worked with and coached and spoken to that struggle with their weight, it's the thing that's the trickiest to get off because once you're on the sugar train, you know, you don't really get off the sugar train until you physically can't have more food in your body. You don't, you feel nauseous or whatever it is. So I guess my question to you is, do you think that sugar is all or nothing for somebody who struggles, right? I'm not talking about the average person. I know like somebody like you, who, you know, you have only been a pound up or a pound down in most of your adult life, right? Is that correct? That's correct. So someone like me who's lost a hundred and gained a hundred, a handful of times in my life, you know, for me, it's like when I have a little sugar, I mean, right now I have the awareness to pull back and be like, okay, I'm going to be triggered for a few days. It's going to take me a good one to two weeks to feel like I can be back 100% to not have those cravings and uh, tendencies to want to eat sweet foods. But I'm curious what you think in your experience. I know you've, you've worked with a lot of people and this is many decades of work. What do you think somebody who's struggling with their weight should do in regards to sugar? So, you know, you're describing what is in essence an addiction. And one of the questions that comes up is can food be addictive? Is it really addictive? And my answer is why is anything else addictive? If you think of what addiction comes from, you know, it, it's not, we don't get addicted because our nervous system is adapted to get addicted. Essentially, what's being tapped into is the nervous system's reward mechanism. And the reward mechanism in the Homo sapien nervous system is all about survival. So there are really a couple of things that trigger an intense pleasure response and an intense feeling of reward. And, you know, to sum them up, as bluntly as possible, food and sex top the list. And, you know, essentially food is all about surviving in your own lifetime. And sex is all about surviving across the span of generations by passing along your genes. Those two things are intense 
intensely rewarded in the limbic system, the part of the brain that generates pleasure. And so, you know, essentially, if you think of addiction as intense reward that's then reinforcing over time, it's really just co-opting the reward system and the nervous system that was originally all about survival. You could ask the question, why is anything other than food or sex addictive? Well, it's a mistake. The nervous system's pathways for rewarding things that are supportive of survival get taken over by certain drugs. So cocaine can do that and opiates can do that and, and on and on it goes. But the origins of addiction reside with things related to survival, namely food and sex. So sure, food can be addictive in all the ways that matter. Sugar tops the list for the reason I just mentioned. We can learn to like the taste of salty food and most of us do that very readily. We can learn to appreciate rich, creamy, fatty food. And most of us do that pretty readily. We like variety, and that's self-reinforcing. Go to an all-you-eat buffet and everybody overeats. The, the variety is overwhelming, <laughs> right. right? On and on it goes. But sugar tops the list because breast milk is sweet. So mammals are adapted before they're born to like the taste of sweet. Almost everything else is a learned preference, but we're born liking sweet. So it kind of makes sense then that if you take a preference that's so profound that it's innate, it's in you before you're born, and then you reinforce it with massive exposure to sugar because our diets are just awash in sugar. The modern hyper-processed diet has sugar everywhere, not just in food that's supposed to be sweet. It's in potato chips, it's in French fries, it's in salad dressings, it's in pasta sauce, it's everywhere. And it's there because the manufacturers know full well it's an appetite stimulant. The more we can hide sugar and stuff that you don't even recognize as sweet, the more of it you'll eat. So it, again, it's by design. So it's not the only culprit. An excess variety is part of the problem. You know, there are other aspects of food, textures that can contribute to overeating, uh, combinations of flavors, salt together with sweet can contribute to overeating, on and on it goes. But yes, sugar is a big part of the problem and, and it makes sense that it would be. And then, you know, Back to me, you're right. My weight hasn't gone up you know, more than a pound or, or down a pound pretty much since I graduated high school. But it's not because I'm less vulnerable than other people. It really isn't. I, I gain weight quite readily. I, I want to make very clear to listeners, this doesn't make me a special person. It doesn't mean I'm a terrific person. I hope I am a terrific person. We'd have to ask my wife and kids. But if I'm a terrific person, it has nothing to do with my weight. The bathroom scale does not measure human worth. Let's be clear about that. But on the other hand, you know, pi that. pilots can fly planes. That doesn't mean they're better people than us. They just have a skill set that enables them to fly planes, right? I mean, I wish I had that. I don't. But I'm a health promotion specialist. I'm board certified in preventive medicine, public health, trained in internal medicine, past president of the American College of Lifestyle Medicine. For crying out loud, if I didn't know how to take good care of myself in spite of it all, who would, right? So it's a skill set. I have skill power. Just like a pilot who can fly a plane has skill power. We're not better people. We just know stuff. And the good news about that is everybody can learn those skills. Everybody can acquire those skills. So my weight is stable for a span of 30 years because I know what I'm doing, because I eat real food, not too much, mostly plants. And a big part of that is there's very little added sugar in my diet, but there isn't none because my, my wife is a brilliant cook and baker and you know she's making a homemade dessert. I'm sure as heck going to have it and really enjoy it. But I don't eat highly processed foods. I don't eat highly processed breakfast cereal. I don't eat processed sauces or dressings or spreads. I don't drink soda. I haven't had a soda in 40 years. I drink water when I'm thirsty and on and on it goes. And what this means is every time I, I line up one of these things, Mordecai, that I don't do, 
it's grams and grams of sugar that aren't in my daily diet. And so let, let's refer back now to your struggle and this issue of addiction. One of the cardinal features of addiction to anything is tolerance. And what tolerance means physiologically is the more you get, the more you need. So if you're only exposed to a little bit of sugar, let's say you eat a small serving of dessert and you do it once or twice a week after dinner and you don't drink soda and you don't eat highly processed food with sugar hidden in it. And that's all the sugar you get. Well, sure, you're still going to like sugar. It's still born into you, but you're not reinforcing it by exposing yourself all the time. And so you don't develop tolerance. And what that means is every time you taste a little bit of sugar, it actually tastes sweet to you. But now let's say instead of that, you're the typical American who is eating sweet food on purpose, donuts and muffins and, and candies and cakes and whatever but is also eating sweet food not on purpose because there's sugar hiding in huge amounts in your breakfast, there's sugar hiding in your pasta sauce, there's sugar hiding in your salad dressing, in your crackers, in your chips, in everything. And you've been talked into thinking that the best way to quench your thirst is Coke or Pepsi, where you're getting you know grams and grams and grams of sugar. Well, now you've taken the sweet tooth you were born with and you have grown it into a, a sweet bang that's taken over your life because you have fed it, you have grown it, and you've developed tolerance. The more you get, the more you need to feel satisfied. So back to your question, you know, do you need to go cold turkey or not? I can't answer it for you. You know, over 30 years of patient care, I told all my patients the same thing I'll tell you right now. I'm not the boss of you. You are the boss of you. You know you better than I can ever know you. Most people don't have to give up sugar completely. They just have to put it in its place. They have to go through taste bud rehab. And it, you know, you think about an addiction model, it really is rehab. So you basically, maybe you go for a period of time where you cut it out completely just to kind of reset your appetite center and your expectations. A lot of my patients didn't even want to do that. And I said, okay, well, here's what we can do. We can massively dial down your exposure to sugar by getting rid of what I call stealth sugar. That's the sugar in foods you don't even recognize as sweet. Let's take a look at the labels on your pasta sauce, salad dressing, crackers, bread, you know, on and on it goes, because you don't need sugar in any of those, but you probably have it. So let's find alternative products that taste good, cost the same, and don't have added sugar. Let's start there. We can take grams and grams out of your daily exposure to sugar without even touching food you recognize as sweet. Then let's move on to the next batch and the next batch and the next batch. And so you know, essentially you're reverse engineering that tolerance. You're getting exposed to less and less and less and less and less. And what tends to happen then is your taste buds come out of their coma and start to be more sensitive to sugar again, and less is more. You're satisfied with less. So for most people, that works. But what you're describing, and this is probably true for some people, and you may be one of them, is kind of, you know, is an alcohol model, where, you know, if you're really highly prone to alcoholism, the safe level of alcohol is none. And, you know, there may be people who are so sensitive to the addictive properties of added sugar that the safest exposure level for added sugar, not intrinsic sugar, by the way, you, you know, it's still okay for you to eat, fruits, for example, whole fruits, but added sugar, which has very different effects, maybe for you and maybe for some people, the safest exposure level is zero. But most of us, I think, can go through taste bud rehab, reverse engineer the tolerance and leave a place in our diets for sugar where we get a lot of pleasure out of very little. And you know, I, I think that's okay. That, that's, I don't have a zero added sugar diet. I have an extremely low added sugar diet. And when I have added sugar in my diet, I know it's there and it's a source of great pleasure my wife's special desserts, for example, which are not an everyday thing. They're an occasional thing, but boy, do I love them when I have them. That's great. I love that. Taste bud rehab. Taste bud rehab. <laughs> That's a, is that a real thing? I coined that term 
boy, it must be 15, 20 years ago. I think I first wrote about it in a column for U.S. News and World Report. I've included it in a number of books I've written. And yes, it's a real thing. So I coined the term, but the literature, and by the way, I have extensive clinical experience. So you know, taking care of patients for 30 years, I did it with my patients right. many, many times. Wow. It's highly effective. But there is a literature on it. You know, essentially, what it shows that we develop tolerance for salt, we develop tolerance for sugar. The more exposure we get, the more we need to feel satisfied. It is a feature of all addictions. It's one, actually one of the defining features of something that's addictive. It's associated with tolerance. The more you get, the more you need. You know, it's, it's true of drugs too. Right. I mean, somebody, you know, cocaine's a bad idea, but, you know, somebody who uses cocaine once a year, they're not going to get addicted to it for the most part. What happens is, you know, people do it, they like it, they do it again, they do it again, they do it again, and then they need more, more, more. And the reason drugs ruin people's lives is, you know, they need a fix and the fix isn't even satisfying. So they need more frequent, higher dose fixes. And so it's not just the native dangers of the drug. It's an escalation of the dose over time. Sugar acts much the same, right? You need more and more and more to feel satisfied until it takes over your life. So yeah, it's, it's a real thing. And again, I've had great success with patients over the years, and most people don't need to go to zero. Some people probably do. Uh, where would someone listening find out more about that? Where would you point them to look? Well, you know, my writing is readily available. I, I have two recent books. It's in both of those. So my most recent book, we were talking about how to eat. We, Mark and I talk about taste bud rehab in that book. The book I wrote before that is my magnum opus. It's basically everything I know dumped into one place. It was a brain dump. It's called The Truth About Food. It's the 750-page doorstop. doesn't matter how strong the wind. It'll hold your door open. I pretty much guarantee it. Maybe, maybe a hurricane, but you know, for the most part, all reasonable weather, it'll hold open your door. And you can get a Kindle version for under 10 bucks. All proceeds from The Truth About Food go to support my nonprofit the True Health Initiative. So it's a worthy cause. It's literally, it's everything I know in one place. And there's a whole section there about taste bud rehab and it cites the, the relevant studies. So uh, all that. But let me offer an even more practical suggestion. My wife has a beautiful free recipe website, quizinicity.com. What, what is it? One more time? Yeah. It's like Cuisine City, but with an I in the middle, Quizinicity. We'll make sure to tag that in the show yeah, notes. Please do. So it's the Cat's Family Greatest Hits. The food is spectacular. Again, my wife is just a brilliant cook. Grew up in Southern France, by the way. So, you know, much of it's sort of Mediterranean inspired. But she's also a PhD in neuroscience. And what she did, providing spectacular food for me and the kids all these years, is experiment in our kitchen, you know, figure out. So it's not just that most of the dishes are incredibly nutritious and low in sugar or salt or anything bad, but she took desserts and just played around with formulations to see how low can you go with the sugar and still make it delicious and the texture right and all that. So, you know, again, if you feel you're someone who needs to go to zero with added sugar, you're going to avoid dessert completely. If you're someone who thinks, no, I, I don't want to give it up completely. I don't need to, but I definitely want to put it in its place. When I have added sugar, I want it to be on purpose. I want it to be as little as possible. And I want to maximize the ratio of pleasure per milligram of sugar, right? Essentially, 100%. I want to taste as great as possible with as little added sugar as possible. Well, then my wife's recipes are for you. They're amazing. I'll have to check that out. Yeah, quizinicity.com, freely available to everybody. Help yourselves and enjoy. Is there a hormone balance going on for somebody like me who's super sensitive compared to someone else? Is there like a, because I'll eat like, I'll eat fresh dates or like a lot of mango, not a lot, but even a, a mango. And I'll notice my cravings start to increase immediately. Interesting. 
Absolutely. So colleague of mine at Yale, a professor of mine, when I arrived at Yale as a student, and then later a colleague, Linda Bartoshuk, one of the world's leading experts on taste and smell responses, studied super tasters for many years. There are genetic differences that account for different sensitivity thresholds in taste. And these in turn predict addictive responses to different components of diet, propensity to gain weight and struggle with obesity. Absolutely. So we vary in our insulin responses. We vary in our levels of ghrelin, which is an appetite hormone produced in the stomach, uh, leptin, which is a appetite regulating hormone produced in fat cells, on and on it goes. It's a pretty complex system that links the brain, the nervous system, the gastrointestinal system, and the hormonal system. So you may or may not have a measurable hormonal imbalance. Some people do. Some people, for example, you can just measure that they are insulin resistant. So they have high levels of insulin and high levels of insulin are associated with weight gain, weight gain around the middle and possibly increased cravings and on it goes. But in some cases, you may not have a hormone that's out of range that we can measure, but you have extreme taste sensitivity or you know, heightened response involving leptin from adipocytes or or some other appetite regulating hormone again it's a pretty complex system absolutely and you know i think it's important Mordecai to have this conversation because one thing i want everybody to understand it's not your fault it really isn't i mean you know again if you know nobody were struggling with their weight and you were you might want to ask yourself what's different about me but everybody's struggling with their weight you know being overweight is normal in modern society and being anything other than overweight is rare. It's truly rare. It's a small, small minority of the population that manages it. And you know, the people that do, it's either because they're genetically predisposed to be thin no matter what, or it's because they've got skill power. You know, I mean, they're people who are really devoted to fitness. They've got money. They can shop for the best food. They've got personal trainers. You know, I mean, it's, it's rare. It's kind of an elite privilege to be lean in modern society. The typical person living a modern life is overweight. It's just, it's easy to be overweight and damn hard not to be, and that's not your fault. If you'd lived at any other time in history, any other time, it would have been the other way around. And at any other time in history, most people were lean. But now, you know, most people are not because it's just too damn hard. And honestly, my view is we ought to fix that. It's a culture level fix, right? And one quick addendum to this, you know, there's been a lot of debate in, in the scientific literature, should obesity be considered a disease? And in some ways, I'm sympathetic to that idea because it, it legitimizes it. It basically says it deserves to be treated with respect like diabetes or hypertension. But believe it or not, I've opposed the idea of calling obesity a disease because it implies there's something wrong with you or your body that needs fixing, and that's just not true. I favor a different analogy. I think we should call obesity a form of drowning. Because you know, if you drown, it doesn't mean there was something wrong with your body that you, you don't have gills. You're not supposed to have gills. It doesn't mean there was something wrong with you that you couldn't breathe underwater. The problem was you wound up underwater for too long. So you know, the, the problem wasn't you or your physiology or your metabolism. The problem was you in a place that was toxic for you. You're not designed to survive for long periods of time underwater. And if that happens to you, you're in big trouble. Well, similarly, the human body, even a perfectly healthy, totally vital functioning normally, human body is not designed to do well in a world awash in foods engineered to be hyper palatable, an endless constant supply of tasty calories, 
and a barrage of labor-saving technology that does all the stuff muscles used to do. You're not designed to thrive there. We are drowning in calories. We are drowning in labor-saving technology. And I like that analogy. Nobody's picked it up but me. I've written about it a number of times. I like it for two reasons. First, it shifts the blame where it belongs. You know, the blame is the environmental problem. It's a, it's a toxic environment. Humans don't thrive underwater for too long. They don't thrive in a culture that runs on Duncan either. And two, with drowning, we don't wait for lots and lots of people to drown and then just you know, have the resources to resuscitate. If someone does drown, we resuscitate them, but all of our resources are directed at preventing drowning. We have lifeguards at beaches. We put fences around pools. We put signs up that warn people about riptides and sharks and dangers in the water. Most parents get swimming lessons for their kids. Parents are vigilant around their kids near water. On and on it goes. You know, 99.999% of the time, we don't let drowning happen. And then if ever it does happen, we resuscitate. Well, that's how we should treat obesity, right? We should, at the level of our culture, we should be asking ourselves, what are the analogous things we could do that would be like lifeguards at beaches and signs warning about riptides and swimming lessons and vigilant parents? And you know, how would we all create a cultural context where we actually make obesity rare because we're all defended against it? You know, again, that's kind of the focus of my career working on it. Sadly, it's not today. And what it means is today, you've got to look out for yourself. Wow. I have never thought about it like that. The way you put it is so perfect. Taking away the guilt and taking away the shame is so important because with guilt and shame, that is a recipe for wanting immediate results because it's so painful to feel guilt and shame. I agree with you completely. And, and it, you know, if you're going to lose weight, the best weight to lose is the weight of guilt and shame. Let's start there. This not 100%. your fault. You know, I'm a physician who's devoted 30 years of my life to this issue. It is not your fault, which you know, it doesn't mean you're not responsible for the solution. Nobody's going to do it for you, right? You've got to sign up. But being engaged in the solution, responsible for taking care of yourself is totally different from being to blame for the problem. You are not to blame for the problem. It's been imposed on you by culture and on purpose for profit. It is so not your fault. And again, I, you know, I'd, I'd really like to see the culture change required so that we fix the problem, not one individual struggling at a time, but at the level of our whole culture. But we've got a long way to go. And between now and then, sadly, the burden is on you. But again, I think first you want to put down the burden of guilt and shame because it's just wrong. You don't own that. You don't need to own that. You need to put that down. And then you need to say, okay, so you know, this is the way it is. I live in a modern world where it's incredibly difficult to be lean where people are exploiting me and profiting from my vulnerabilities. And yet I've got to do the best I can. So what can I do? And what I argue is get the skills. It's about skill power, right? Again, you know, people can fly planes. It's amazing, but they learn how to do it and they can do it. This is not that hard. It's not that complicated. It's, you don't have to get into a cockpit of a 747, but you do have to learn some stuff. What do I look for in food labels? What do I need to know about food preparation? What are, the, what are my specific vulnerabilities that I need to deal with? How do I do taste bud rehab on myself? How do I engage social support for eating well rather than let my social network talk me into eating badly? How do I resist the temptations that I encounter every day? And on and on it goes. But for every one of those things, there's a skill-based answer. And you know, I've written about that in all of my books and, and all my work. And again, you asked before, if people want to find my writing, much of which is available online in columns, or they want access to, to all these books I've done over the years, my website is a good place to go, davidkatzmd.com. There's also a link from there to the True Health Initiative, my nonprofit, where there's a lot more information. So davidkatzmd.com, help yourself yep. to whatever you find there. But 
you know, I believe willpower is enough to care, but it's not enough to win the fight. If you want to win the fight, you need skill power. And most people don't have it. You know, we, we really, most of us have not been taught. How do you navigate through the challenges of a modern world of hyper palatable, you know, willfully addictive junk food and not get fat? Most of us haven't learned those skills. They can be learned. Everybody can learn them, but most people haven't. And then, you know, there is one additional thing, Mordecai. I mean, even you have a better chance, you know, because, I mean, you know, here you are, a professional person working, you know, you've got resources. You think about people who are really struggling, you know, who, you know, living in food swamps and food deserts and, you know, barely enough money to scrape by and, you know, just buying what they can afford and shopping in whatever places available to them. You know, they don't have access to a supermarket. You know, there are some folks where the deck is so stacked against them, they, until or unless we achieve culture change, they really don't have a chance. Well, that makes me very sad. And that's also something I've worked on my whole career. But, I, you know, it's only fair to acknowledge that some people, even if they have the skills, they don't live in an environment where they can benefit from the skills, right? And so we have to fix that too. That's a great point that you bring up about the people who live in those areas who can't even access, you know, health, you know, vegetables, fruits, and, and food, that's, food that's real, right? And some people can, even if they can access, can't afford it. Where does someone like that actually start? Well, anybody can decide, I'm going to do the best I can. And, you know, just as a, for instance, if, if you're in a situation like that and you're struggling, you know, even a bodega where you have minimal choice is going to have hyper-processed, ultra-processed junk food, and it's going to have cans of beans. And you would start with the cans of beans. You know, if you learn, if you decide, I'm going to learn what I can to take the best possible care of my family, you know, beans and lentils are unbelievably nutritious and incredibly inexpensive. And, you know, they have a great shelf life if they're canned, they last forever. So, you know, they're firing on all cylinders. They're available everywhere. They're inexpensive. They're enormously nutritious. They're sustainable for the environment. Okay. That's part of the solution. Cooking grains kind of the same way, you know, whole grains that you can cook with. More and more people potentially, you know, have access via shopping online to things they might not be able to find right in their neighborhood, but that of course presupposes they have internet access, which the people who are most challenged may not. And then we really do need to devise solutions either that are cultural and environmental or at least in policy. So one of the policy opportunities for us is to reimagine SNAP, which you know used to be called food stamps as a supplemental nutrition assistance program or SNAP. Essentially it's food stamps, you know, the way it's delivered now. But you know, imagine if I actually worked on this for years. You know, we develop a scoring system for the overall nutritional quality of foods. So I, I literally built an algorithm that was called the Overall Nutritional Quality Index Algorithm, working with world-class nutrition scientists. It was a program deployed into a couple thousand U.S. supermarkets for a number of years under the name NuVal. One to 100, the higher the number, the more nutritious the food. And that's all lovely. But what I really wanted to do with it was okay, so now we give this system to SNAP beneficiaries, people who are struggling most to get decent food for their families. And how about we do this? You're buying food with SNAP vouchers. If you buy a food in the bottom quartile of scores for that kind of food, a dollar's worth a dollar. But if you buy a food in the next quartile up, your dollar's worth a dollar twenty-five. If you go all the way to the top quartile, your dollar's worth two dollars. In other words, you double your purchasing power when you move up to higher quality nutrition. So you're actively encouraged and, and the savings can go into a savings account, which you can use for clothes or gym membership or auto repair, or, you know, a whole big menu of things you can do with the money that goes into your savings account. 
So you're getting better quality food at lower cost, making money that you can spend on other things. But everybody would win because the government covers the cost of the SNAP program. It also covers the cost of Medicaid and treating a huge burden of chronic disease that poor people wind up getting because they're eating poor food. So you know, essentially, the taxpayer spends money on SNAP, $80 billion a year, to subsidize poor food for poor people so they can get poor health, which we then all have to pay for through Medicaid. If instead we incentivized high quality food at the front end, poor people could get good quality food, have better health, better lives, save money doing it, and the taxpayer wins because the cost of doing that is massively less than the cost of paying for dialysis and coronary bypass, which is what we're doing now. That's business as usual in America. So are there ways to fix it all where everybody wins? There are. They keep me hopeful, they keep me optimistic, and they keep me working hard because we've got miles to go to get there. I think one of the most important things for someone listening who's struggling to think about is it's not an all or nothing, right? And I think that our culture, we promote the all or nothing mindset, especially on diets. You know, if you're on the Atkins diet or the paleo diet and you have a piece of bread, you're off. And then it's like the on or off mentality doesn't motivate somebody to go to a bodega and buy a can of beans because if they can buy a donut or two for a dollar to buy a can of beans, even the same price, it's like, ah, I already had, you know, pizza today. I'm like, why would I eat beans? And I think it's really interesting when you start pulling it apart and being like, you know what, if you had beans, it's actually, it's like, it's not all or nothing. It's not a zero sum game. Absolutely. And one other thing I'd point out, Mordecai, and that is people rarely stop to ask what health is for. Because we, we act like health is the prize. And it's not. I'm a physician and I can tell you health is not the prize. If being healthy or unhealthy didn't do anything to affect how you feel every day and how much you enjoyed life, who would care? The reason we care about health is because healthy people have more fun. Fun is the prize. Quality of life is the prize. So here's the thing. Eating food you love can add pleasure to your life. On the other hand, if you eat too much of the wrong foods and wind up with chronic illness or very unhappy with your weight, that adds displeasure to your life. Flip it around, taking really good care of yourself, exercising, eating well, liking what you see in the mirror, that can add pleasure to your life. But denying yourself everything you want to eat can add displeasure to your life. Think of it this way. You want to maximize the pleasure. There's pleasure you can get from what you consider good food. There's absolutely pleasure you can get starting today. You know, it's not delayed gratification. You, you know, you take good care of yourself today. You feel better today. You feel more energetic today. It really does. It's the gift that starts giving right away and keeps on giving vitality. Well, you really want to get pleasure from good food, pleasure from good health. And I think the question we should all be asking ourselves is, for me, what's the combination of, you know, eating what I love, but also making sure that what I eat loves me back? that maximizes my quality of life because that's where I want to spend my time. And you know, nobody can tell you what that is. For some people, you know, if you're just absolute, total devoted foodie and you love the skin you're in no matter what, you know, you're 100 pounds overweight and you say, look, I love food. I'm happy. I don't care about my weight. And if I need to take some medication to compensate, I will. You know, that wouldn't be my choice, but maybe it would be somebody's. And if it was one of my patient's choices and they, and they, you know, they were well-informed, they understood their options and said, this is the best version of me. So, okay, I will support you fully. Most people don't feel that way. Most people, you know, they care what they see in the mirror. They care whether or not they have to take medications. And if you just sort of process it that way and say, the goal here, you know, this is not denying myself something that I really want. The goal here is actually to maximize the total sum of pleasure in my life pleasure I get from doing things that feel good right away, 
pleasure that I get from feeling good about my health and vitality. And then it's then that, you know, on off either, or I failed. So what the hell, you know, I, I might as well buy another donut mentality. It all goes away. It's just a different way of framing the whole approach. Amen. What is one area in your life where you are feeling full in right now? I would say my marriage. My wife and I have you know, raised five children to adulthood together. And we've had difficulties along the way, as everybody does, you know, the health issues in the family and, and all kinds of challenges. And of course, we're all living through the challenges of the pandemic together. And the best of relationships are tested in adversity and come through stronger. And, and we've had that opportunity. And there's no question that the single most fulfilling thing that fills me to the brim is my relationship with my wife. She, you know, she's, I trust her judgment. You know, when I'm weak, she's strong. When she needs my strength, I muster it for her. You know, just a deep, abiding love and friendship. And it's a reminder of what really matters because, you know, we go out in the world and, and try to make a difference. And sometimes the world says, thank you. And sometimes the world says, shut up, but you always come back home. And that's, that's where you restore yourself. And I have a beautiful, a beautiful relationship to come back to for my restoration. And it, it fills me up. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. Thank you so much for sharing. You know, talking to you really invigorates me. It gives me a lot of energy, your passion uh, for the work that you're doing for the last three decades. And for the, the way you care about people. It really it really hits home. And I wish we can talk for another hour, but I know you have to go. Very good. Well, I'll look forward to part two, Mordecai. It was a pleasure being with you. Thank you so much again for coming on the show. Take good care. That's it for us today, friends. Thanks for listening. If you want to keep in touch, subscribe to my weekly emails at feelingfull.com, where I unpack what I'm learning about weight loss and share ways we can all live healthier, more fulfilling lives. Do you know someone who's struggling right now? If they can use some support, feel free to share this episode with them. And if you have a moment to rate and review, that really helps grow the show. Take care, be well, and feel full.